In our first lecture, we saw that Rousseau distinguished between two stages in the history of mankind. The first stage, stage A, over here on the board, stage A, we can call the state of nature. It is only at the highest reaches of this state of nature that there are even the rudiments of social organization or technology. The second stage, stage B, is the stage of civilized society from the time that government arrived on the scene. It is the stage of increasing technology, civilization, manners, refinement. It is characterized by increasing reliance on reason and decreasing reliance on tradition. It is also characterized by increasing inequality. It is this inequality which makes stage B morally repugnant to Rousseau. The mere fact that so much inequality has emerged in stage B is sufficient proof that the social contract on which stage B was founded is illegitimate, devoid of all moral claim on us. What social contract is this? It is the Lockean social contract, which stated that the sole function of government is to protect men in their lives, liberties, and estates. This contract must be declared null and void, and stage B, the civilized society founded upon it, must be subjected to an overhaul that is characterized either by revolution or by radical reform. But what is to be the goal of our revolution or radical reform? Shall we return to stage A, the state, the state of nature? We cannot do that, says Rousseau. I cannot eat acorns. We have gotten used to the comforts of civilization and cannot do without them. Therefore, we must project a third stage, stage C, in which those comforts shall in large part be retained, but in which there shall be a much greater equality among men. Stage C will be based on a social contract that will be for the first time a legitimate one. Rousseau's proposal is worked out in his major contribution to political philosophy, The Social Contract, which was published in 1762. I now proceed to an exposition in outline of the social contract, but I wish to note that I am relying to some extent on Rousseau's explanation of his economic views as set forth in his Discourse on Political Economy, known as the Third Discourse, which had been published in 1755. And for his views on philosophy of education, I am relying on his Emile, E-M-I-L-E, published in 1762, the same year as the social contract. Let us ask ourselves, what was good about stage A? Equality, 
lack of competition, no one is made to feel inferior to others. What was bad about stage A? There was no protection from the weather, from hunger, from sudden attacks of other men going berserk. It's the disadvantages of Central Park, you say. <laughs> what was good about stage B? Control over nature, production of needed goods. What was bad about stage B? Competition in which some people lose out and are made to feel inferior. Also, Rousseau argues against Locke, why should the mental strength of the first occupier, who knew enough to sow the land, why should the mental strength of the first occupier, the mental strength necessary to wait for a crop to grow and to irrigate the land, why should that mental strength give any greater title than the physical strength of the looter who comes and tries to take it away from him? The bandito, you see, who waits in the hills while the peasant raises his corn. The formula for stage C, which is the solution, the synthesis which is going to bring together the thesis and the antithesis, the formula for stage C is a society in which there is production and manufacture, but in which there are restraints on the accumulation of private wealth and on competition. Rousseau wants the efficient production, later characteristic of capitalist society, without giving to the more productive such rewards as may, in his view, in Rousseau's view, deprive the less productive of self-respect. In other words, he wants to drive a wedge between production and distribution, a point that he did not make completely explicit but was made first explicit by John Stuart Mill in his Principles of Political Economy in the middle of the 19th century. Hence, the whole social order must be under the control of the state. The scramble for luxury must be abolished. Therefore, once basic physical needs are met, the simple life must be enforced on all. Economic growth must be strictly controlled or reduced to zero, the concept of zero growth, you say. This means giving up inalienable property rights, that is, property rights immune to governmental invasion. All property must be acquired, held, and used at the discretion of the state. To implement this policy, people must be forced to prefer the simple life. This, in turn, has cultural consequences. We must censor literature, music, art, and the theater, and women must be kept in their place. And this has educational consequences. The state must eventually control people not only through law, but through a new system of education. So then, let us see what we will carry over from stage A to stage C. We will carry over psychological simplicity and transparency, the sort of thing which makes 
made the Spartan kick a stone when asked a philosophic question. We must carry over guaranteed freedom from the judgment of others. We must carry over closeness to nature. These are the simplest comforts of life as Rousseau knew them in 18th century Western Europe, comforts in quotes. Let us now turn to the social contract to see how he works out this proposal in terms of constitutional or fundamental law. I proceed to the introductory remarks uh, to book one. Rousseau says that his purpose is to inquire whether there can be any state or government which is one, legitimate, and two, practicable. He will try to find an ideal social system capable of governing men as they now are, as they now are. In other words, he is saying that human nature need not change before his political system is kicked into motion. His political system is ideal in the sense that it can be imposed on men as they now are. Any change in human nature will come later as the result of governmental activity establishing literacy, universal literacy, and universal compulsory public education. Furthermore, Rousseau claims that under his system there will be no conflict between interest and right. We shall see how he makes good this claim. So to summarize these uh, introductory remarks, Rousseau's social contract is a political system decline, designed to take man in his second phase, stage B, in which he is egoistic, corrupt, competitive, and to bring him into a third phase, state C, whose detailed characteristics we are yet to see, but which is to start with man as he now is, depraved by civilization. Note the analogy with Calvin's Geneva, Rousseau's hometown, whose political system was deliberately tailored to the goal of controlling a totally depraved human nature, a nature depraved by original sin. To control the Genevans, Calvin built a strict and repressive state. Rousseau intends to do the same, but on the basis not of Augustinian theology, but of secular humanism. Rousseau specifically says that the more he compares the political systems of other countries with that of the Republic of Geneva, of which he is a citizen, the more he loves that of Geneva. The legitimacy of a social order cannot be based on force, so Rousseau says, this is a rhetorical statement of his. Otherwise, it will follow that as long as a people is compelled to obey and obeys, it does well. As soon as it can shake off the yoke and shakes it off, it does still better. But the social order is a sacred right, which is the basis of all rights. 
And then he says, quote, Nevertheless, this right, this social order, the right to be found in social order, does not come from nature and must be founded on convention. Convention, stipulation. This last view comes from Hobbes and before him from the sophists. We now proceed to the first book, famous statement of Rousseau, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. This sentence is usually misinterpreted as a call to revolution against society's control of the individual. It's usually misinterpreted, I repeat, as a call to revolution against society's control of the individual. Never has, has a statement been so much misinterpreted. Rousseau's meaning is quite different. By chains, he means social controls, laws of any in all kinds, legitimate or illegitimate. But the social controls of his own time he regards as immoral and illegitimate because they are based on competition and result in inequality. Being immoral and illegitimate, they are oppressive. And Rousseau does advocate revolution, but not a revolution to do away with all chains. No, he wants a revolution to introduce new chains, which will not be those of the marketplace, but those of the state. These chains will be morally justified and therefore legitimate. This is clearly revealed in his next sentence. How did this chain, this change from freedom to chains come about? How did this change come about? I do not know. What can make it legitimate? That question I think I can answer. So you see, he very clearly says that he intends to legitimate the transition to change. And yet commentator after commentator has assumed that he wanted to deliver mankind from chains. That problem I think I can answer, unquote. The problem of the social contract, therefore, is how to fit man to new legitimate chains, how to impose upon him new legitimate laws, social controls. Any and every student of political philosophy must judge for himself whether these new chains, these new social controls, are any more legitimate or lighter than the old ones they are replacing in so many parts of the world today under the guidance of Rousseau's disciples. And everyone interested in his own welfare must become to some degree and in some measure a student of political philosophy and I might add, of the epistemological, metaphysical, and ethical premises underlying political philosophy. And, I might add still further, he owes it to himself to look around and see how other people are judging on this matter. So then, let us look and see how Rousseau sets about legitimate, legitimating his kind of state and let us see what kind of state that is. First, Rousseau says that the legitimation of the state is based on a mere convention and not on any tendency to social harmony. This declaration is contained in what we call Old Chapter 2, 
from the original draft of the Geneva Manuscript. This chapter was suppressed by Rousseau. It was first published toward the end of the 19th century. Let us look for a moment, therefore, at Old Chapter 2, which is called On the General Society of Mankind and is not printed in all copies of the Social Contract. This is an answer to Diderot's article on natural right in the Encyclopédie, the encyclopedia of the, the famous work of the, uh, which was the Bible of the Enlightenment. Diderot claimed that prior to the formation of the political state, individuals have a natural desire for a harmonious social order. Against this optimistic doctrine, Rousseau argues in Old Chapter 2, he argues fiercely that a harmonious social order would be unnatural and contrary to the private interests of the individual. A just society requires unselfishness, and the selfish interests of individuals clash. Even if an individual freely decided to put the general or public interest above his own, how could he be sure that others would do the same? <coughs> the natural man of state B is really antisocial and unjust. This is the man of Lockean civilized early capitalist society. In state B, men are, quote, living simultaneously in the freedom of the natural state and the subjection of the social state, unquote. Such men can care nothing about justice and equality, for up to a point at least, they can do as they please regardless of the effect on others in the community. Now, the reason for the social contract, the legitimate social contract. Rousseau continues that we must find a better organization which will ensure, quote, the reward for good actions, the punishment for bad ones, and the lovable harmony of justice and happiness, unquote. In this social order, this new social order, the individual's reason will be, quote, illuminated with new lights, unquote, and his heart will be, quote, warmed by new feeling, unquote, as he learns to share and be altruistic. But this will be the result of re-education. The present stage, stage B, the Lockean society, in this present stage, there is a contradiction between the individual and society. This will be overcome by Rousseau's program. As Rousseau has previously stated in La Nouvelle Eloise, the individual will be indoctrinated to believe that the public interest is, is his personal interest, and thus he will be led to sacrifice his real personal interest for the uh, public interest. In denying that the pre-political natural law required men to live honorably and justly with one another, as Locke and Diderot had argued, in denying this, Rousseau made justice a result of positive enacted law rather than natural law. He made it a result of convention. For, quote, for law is prior to justice, not justice to law. 
But here Rousseau fell into blatant self-contradiction. For if there were no justice prior to the social contract, how could the partners to the contract morally bind one another with a promise to keep the contract? The promise could be meaningful only if the keeping of agreements were already recognized as just. Perhaps the realization of this contradiction led Rousseau to suppress the chapter. Apart from its being founded on contradiction, not on nature, what are the basic conditions of a legitimate social contract? Rousseau's first basic condition is that the formation of the state must be voluntary. His, he makes this argument uh, in chapters 3 and 4 of Book 1. His argument may be summed up in his own words. Quote, Obey the powers that be. If this means yield to force, it is a good precept but superfluous. I can answer to its never being violated. A brigand surprises me at the edge of the wood. Must I not merely surrender my purse on compulsion, but even if I could withhold it, am I in conscience bound to give it up? For certainly the pistol he holds is also a power. Let us then admit that force does not create right and that we are obliged to obey only legitimate powers. In that case, my original question recurs how to legitimate the chains. Remember that Rousseau had started out by asking, what can make the power of the state legitimate? The, his answer, as we have just noted, is consent. <coughs> Excuse me. But consent to what? Is it the consent to lay our pistols down and call in an outside sovereign, as Hobbes thought? No. Is it the consent to delegate the execution of the natural law, to delegate the punishment of aggressors to an agency known as the government, which Locke thought? No. What is this consent, then? The answer is Rousseau's second basic condition of legitimacy. His first was consent, now we come to his second. The consent must be the consent of previously separate individuals to become one people. Capitalize that in your mind, one people. The word people is vital. We shall see how Rousseau fills in its meaning. Now what should motivate these previously separate individuals to decide to form one people? The answer is Rousseau's third basic condition of legitimacy. Quote, I suppose men to have reached the point at which obstacles to their preservation in a state of nature are greater than the resources at the disposal of each individual for his maintenance in that state, unquote. In other words, men decide that they cannot make it alone out in nature. They cannot eat without a state. At this point, they might decide to solve their problems by entering a free and competitive society. But that would be an illegitimate state, and they're looking for a legitimate state. Even if they are now members of a free and competitive society, they do not as yet form a people. They are only separate, enslaved individuals. And so we come to Rousseau's fourth basic condition. Separate individuals become one people 
only by a total merger in which each gives up his right to control his own life and agrees to let the group control his life in exchange for an equal voice in setting the ground rules. This people Rousseau calls the sovereign, and the equal voice of each citizen Rousseau calls civil liberty or civil liberties. You see now where the name of a certain organization came from. <laughs> Mentioned by Dr. Locke yesterday. Now first note the difference from John Locke. No rights are retained. There are no inalienable rights. Hear Rousseau on this. Quote, the clauses of the social contract properly understood may be reduced to one. Remember now, these are Rousseau's exact words. The clauses of the social contract properly understood may be reduced to one. The total alienation of each associate together with all his rights to the whole community, unquote. Quote, each member of the community gives himself to it at the moment of foundation with all the resources at his command, including the goods he possesses, unquote. Now, so far as the goods are concerned, these will be returned to the individual by the sovereign people together with a certificate of ownership. <laughs> but the amount returned, the rules for its proper use, including one's right to give it, to sell it, or to bequeath it, all these will depend on what is in the public interest. What is in the public interest is the question of how much is important for the community to control. But, says Rousseau, quote, the sovereign is the sole judge of what is important, unquote. So much for the right to property. Now, what of the still more important right to life? What happens to that? Rousseau's argument is geometrically clear and correct, granted his premises. He tells us that the individual joins society in order to escape death. Death by starvation, that is. What he risks in this choice is getting drafted. Quote, the social treaty has for its end the preservation of the contracting parties. He who wills the end wills the means. Bracket within quotes. This is the possibility that Uncle Sovereign will want him as a sacrificial victim. He who wills the end wills the means. He who wishes to preserve his life at others' expense, get it? And uh, uh, welfare, see, at others' expense, should also, when it is necessary, be ready to give it up for their sake. How often we hear this argument, not only from liberals, but from conservatives. Furthermore, the citizen is no longer the judge of the dangers to which the law de desires him to expose himself. And when the government says to him, quote, it is expedient for the state that you die, he ought to die, because it is only on that condition 
that he has been living on in security up to the present. And because his life is no longer a mere bounty of nature, but a gift made conditionally by the state. So, unquote. So that is your life. It is a gift made to you conditionally by the state. So much for the right to life. The whole argument depends on the difference between Rousseau's and Locke's basic premise. Locke assumes that individuals start out with the ability to make it alone and then enter society for common protection, setting up government uh, as a guard against criminals. On the other hand, Rousseau assumes that individuals start in a position of incompetence qua individuals. Every individual needs others to help him face reality. And so everyone is in a position to make everyone else an offer he can't refuse. This is what happens whenever and wherever the individual defaults on his relation to reality. He must then relate to reality indirectly via social relations. This is what Rousseau evaluates as normal. Well, now we know what the sovereign is. It is the total community. The total community may legitimately enact whatever it wishes. This is totalitarian democracy. Democracy in the sense that the majority rules, totalitarian in the sense not merely that the sovereign is unlimited, as in Hobbes, but also in the sense that Rousseau provides for the basic methods and techniques of political oppression that have been used in the 20th century totalitarian states. Let us see how this works out. Imagine a community in which all major decisions are made by vote of all the citizens. Does Rousseau advocate this? He does. All major decisions made by vote of all the citizens. But when we inquire, but when we imagine such a state, we imagine something like a New England town meeting with full deliberation, debate, motions, amendments, points of order, and so on. Is this what Rousseau has in mind? He does not. Rousseau's idea of a democratic decision is a plebiscite. In Rousseau's plebiscite, an intellectual elite works out carefully worded propositions which are presented to the electorate together with a list of reasons, pro and con, made up by an intellectual elite, like the League of Women Voters or something like that. You say, that's the origin. No debate is allowed. No one is allowed to consult with anyone else, lest factions form. In other words, there is no freedom of speech, press or assembly, obviously no campaign funds. Everyone must vote you still find that in some European countries like Belgium. Everyone must vote, and the result is binding on all. You see why everyone must vote to give the idea of unanimity. This is what is meant by the phrase, what else but power to the people, power to the people. The problem is, why does Rousseau want this sort of society? But before we answer that question, 
we must grasp the overall structure of Rousseau's state. At the bottom, the base of the state, is the people or sovereign, which is in principle absolute and which has the right of deciding all crucial issues by plebiscite. Quote, the legislative power belongs to the people and to it alone, unquote. But the individual members of the sovereign, considered as individuals, are subjects. Someone has to see to it that they obey the laws. This is the government now, as opposed to the sovereign people, the government. Quote, an intermediate body set up between the subjects and the sovereign, unquote, that is set up between the people collectively and the people individually. The government is charged with the execution of the laws. It is the supreme administration. The government receives its authority from the people in a special act of the people setting up that form of government and in a second act nominating those who are to hold power. Remember that as the government does not make laws, it is improper to speak of Rousseau's advocating representative government. By representative government is meant a government which includes a legislative function, and Rousseau rejects this. Nevertheless, the government advocated by Rousseau governs by decree in between plebiscites. Now, inasmuch as the plebiscites are concerned only with the most general matters, this means that the government is the interpreter of the laws. Rousseau says that the government must have great flexibility in applying and interpreting the laws and must settle each case on its own merits. You've heard that before. Furthermore, the government is not only executive, but is also judicial. So really, the government is a bureaucracy with enormous discretionary power. Rousseau's state is a bureaucrat's dream. Over and above these two elements in the state, there is the legislator, the legislator. The legislator is a detached intellectual or body of intellectuals who or which set up the whole system and watches over it. The legislator has no legal power but has supreme influence over the educational system and it is he or they who are called upon to word the propositions of the plebiscite so that the plebiscite will come out right. The legislator need not even be a citizen. Uh, he may have no formal position at all, like uh, Calvin in Geneva. Or he may even be largely unknown to the citizens, like Fraser in B.F. Skinner's Walden too. What do I mean? the plebiscite come out right. Isn't the will of the majority automatically right? Not at all. And here we come to Rousseau's fifth basic condition of legitimacy. The will of the majority, even if it is the will of all, that is unanimous, is not necessarily in accordance with the public interest. 
that will which is in accordance with the public interest Rousseau calls the general will. This will, which is in accordance with the public interest, is always right by definition. The problem is to find the general will and to express it. The answer is to be found in a brilliant and sensational chain of reasoning whose significance is overlooked by many commentators on Rousseau. Now I'm going to give a, a formal definition of the general interest. I'm going to speak slowly. The general will is the implicit acceptance by each person of life in society as the overriding goal. The general will is the implicit acceptance by each person of life in society as the overriding goal to which he, each person, is willing to sacrifice all other goods that is, all private or particular wills, including his own. The gen I'm going to repeat the whole definition now. The general will is the implicit acceptance by each person of life in society as the overriding goal to which he is willing to sacrifice all other goods, all private or particular wills, including his own. But isn't this implicit acceptance always accompanied by a hedge? Rousseau asks, isn't everyone really trying to promote both his, both his own private interests and the benefits to him of life and society by simply sacrificing everyone else's private interests to his? Yes, he is, says Rousseau. But everyone is also ready to sacrifice his own private interest if he really has to, to his desire to live in society. That is, if the alternative is to be thrown out of the boat. This is really his will, conditional acceptance of the public interest. This is everybody's actual or real will, conditional acceptance of the public interest. Except in the times that I can get away with it, you see. Consequently, circumstances will be set up so that either he doesn't know what his private interests are or doesn't know what are the private interests of others with whom he might form a coalition. Therefore, plebiscites must consist of carefully worded propositions with only yes and no, we oui and non, answers allowed. Therefore, there must be no public debate, no amendments, no factions, no parties. Rousseau calls this a no-party government, but you can see what it is. It's a one-party government. This is the meaning of a people's democracy. Rousseau originated the very concept. At last we see who the legislator is. Rousseau. Now let us see what Rousseau said about the legislator. He's the author of the laws. That is, he creatively he makes them up, drafts them. He is ideally a foreigner as Plato was in Syracuse or Calvin was in Geneva. 
His purpose should be to change human nature in such a way that men are deprived of the capacity to help themselves and given new resources which they cannot use without the help of other men. The laws he draws up must be the product of a lofty intelligence. You know who that is. They become laws when they are ratified by a carefully controlled plebiscite. We have now seen that Rousseau wishes his followers to found a society in which the power of the state is unlimited, but which is made to appear legitimate by the apparent consent of the majority. This is totalitarian democracy, totalitarian because, as I said before, the power of the state is unlimited, and democracy because the people are marched to the polls to give their consent to laws already decided on. But in this totalitarian democracy, the real government is a bureaucracy which applies the law to day-to-day -to -day situations. I want to insert a few words here about some essential aspects of Rousseau's philosophy of education as set forth in Emile, 1762. In his philosophy of education, he is no longer taking men as they are, but molding them into men as they should be. His philosophy of education is the postscript to his political philosophy. In other words, we start with men as they are, we establish a totalitarian democracy, then we bring up the literacy level, then we found a universal public education, you say, and then men's nature begins to change. Rousseau does not see education as the development of the reason, as the development of a free and independent mind. He attacks Locke explicitly for holding such views. According to Rousseau, the purpose of education is to adjust the individual to the group, in other words, to socialize him. So, was John Dewey really the founder of progressive education? Maybe we shouldn't blame Dewey uh, so much. But now, why does the individual need to be adjusted to the group? Why does he need to be socialized? Because Rousseau conceives the individual as by nature antisocial. Ready to go on a berserk, you see. Rousseau has already made it clear in his political philosophy that the private interests of the individual are antithetical and hostile to the public interest of the new kind of society which Rousseau is advocating. It is therefore necessary for the state to restrain and repress the individual, to censor what he reads and to deny him knowledge. This restraint and censorship Rousseau calls respectively, quote, forcing people to be free, unquote, and, quote, true enlightenment, unquote. You see, he's even redefining the concept of the enlightenment. But how does education come in? Aren't people already sufficiently kept in line by the law and the state apparatus? To this question, Rousseau answers no. The trouble with law is that it restrains man from without, and this is an almost impossible task. Negative reinforcement, you see, B.F. Skinner would say. This is an almost impossible task. This completes the material on this side. For the proper start on side B, turn this cassette over now.
some means must be found to restrain him from within, equivalent to Skinner's positive reinforcement, to remold his mind so that he will be more docile and therefore fewer laws will be needed. How can man be restrained from within? And even if we restrain him from within, isn't that taking away his freedom? Let us try to answer the second question first, the question of whether this isn't taking away his freedom. Rousseau answers that when a person obeys the law, he is only obeying himself, because when he entered the social contract, A, he committed himself to obeying the law, and B, the commitment was in his own interest, protection, you say, and survival. Well, if a commitment to obeying the law really is always in one's interest, and if this commitment is sometimes contrary to our interests, we obviously have a contradiction. Not at all, says Rousseau. Obeying the law at all times is both in his interest and contrary to his interest. And this is no contradiction because we are speaking about two different interests within the one man. There is part of him in whose interest it is always to obey the law. This is the part of him which passionately wants the benefits of civilization without the loss of self-respect, without being regarded as incompetent. But there is another part of him which wants to make himself an exception to the law. Man is therefore a divided being. Please note that the first self is the self whose interest generates morality. It is therefore the moral self, the law and order self. The second is the everyday, grimy, grafting, kickback accepting self which wants to evade the law. Rousseau has thus fallen back on a Pauline, Augustinian, Calvinistic model of the self. That which I would do, I do not, says St. Paul, and that which I would not do, that I do. Since the lower self is strong and in conflict with law, it is necessary to develop and strengthen the higher self. This is achieved through education. Education will prevent crime. The success or failure of the state depends on this, quote, form men if you want to command them, unquote. Quote, if you want men to obey the laws, make them love the laws, unquote. Quote, tame children, bring about their complete submission, unquote. The means ruled out are rational persuasion and corporal punishment, that is, persuade them by B.F. Skinner's lollipop. Let the child first be nursed by his mother, but then withdraw him as much as possible from parents and relatives. This implies compulsory public education. Locke had already written about the importance of the intellectual education of children so that they could cope with life rationally. Rousseau does not want this at all. He does not believe that children can be rational or can be reasoned with. Now, you see, he's in favor of universal public education in his kind of state, 
but actually he was in favor of private education for the Lockean state, you see. Uh, so he could teach his own ideas through these progressive means. So there's no, sometimes he seems to be an advocate of private education and sometimes of public. So you see, that's how that's reconciled. The first 12 years of the child must be without intellectual education. It must consist entirely of physical and moral education. The fact that Rousseau lumps moral education with gymnastics point shows that he does not think that values are rational. Let the child grow natural food grown in his own garden. Confine him to a vegetable diet. Let him go barefoot. Keep washing him in cold water. Keep him active. They didn't have showers in those days. Let him do whatever he wants to the point of injury. Well, now I want to add a few words uh, in ending on the influence of Rousseau on Kant. Immanuel Kant read a meal in 1762, and it reportedly made him miss his afternoon walk. This was, <laughs> this, this was a major event in Euro European intellectual history. See, Kant, the citizens of the city of Königsberg used to set their watches when they would see Kant uh, and his servant coming out to go for a walk. And uh, Kant was a really advanced, obsessive type of personality. He had these strings attached to his socks, and the strings would go up into his pocket, into his pants pockets. In his pants pocket, he had two little boxes with with uh, spools and cranks on the outside of the boxes. So if it was cold, he'd just <laughs> wind the cranks, and his socks would go up. <laughs> <laughs> he had everything under control. No. <laughs> According to Lewis White, Lewis White Beck, that's B-E-C-K, Lewis White Beck, one of Kant's major commentators, reading a meal, this is, quote, had an immediate and profound impact on Kant. It brought about a deep personal change, unquote. This is what Beck calls the Rousseauistic revolution in Kant's philosophy. That is, the, to go along with the Copernican revolution, you say. Uh, he makes this point in his Lewis White Beck, Early German Philosophy, Kant and His Predecessors, pages 489 through 91. Beck quotes Kant. Quote, by inclination, I am an inquirer. I feel a consuming thirst for knowledge, the unrest which goes with the desire to progress in knowledge and satisfaction at every advance of knowledge. There was a time when I believed that this constituted the honor of humanity, and I despised the people who knew nothing. Rousseau corrected me in this. This blinding prejudice disappeared. I learned to honor man." Unquote. Kant might have said, 
that Rousseau awakened him from his dogmatic slumber in morality, the dream that greater worth can be gained by greater knowledge and reason in the ordinary normal sense of reason. In reality, Rousseau shocked Kant back into his pietistic religious childhood belief that man cannot control his life through reason, you see, doctrine of total depravity. Kant's moral philosophy was influenced by Rousseau's political philosophy. In political philosophy, you see, usually it's the other way around. One founds a political philosophy on a moral philosophy. Now, actually, in a certain sense, uh, Kant took the political philosophy of Rousseau and used it to fashion an ethics by a peculiar turn. In political philosophy, Rousseau had ordered the verbal argument that while disobedience to law is anarchy, obedience imposed on a man from outside is slavery. Rousseau's solution is the free commonwealth or democratic society wherein we all rule ourselves, owe the national debt to ourselves, etc. It is the general will versus the particular will. Kant takes this over into ethics. Corresponding to particular wills, he sees desires of the individual. The de desires of the individual are to Kant what the particular will of the citizen is to Rousseau. Corresponding to the general will, Kant sees the rational will of the individual, the quote, rational, unquote, will of the individual. He who follows his particular desires as ethical guides is, to Kant, indulging in moral anarchy. But he who accepts commandments from the outside is a moral slave. Both of these are forms of heteronomy, H-E-T-E-R-O-N-O-M-Y, heteronomy, rule by others. Both of these are forms of heteronomy or rule by others. He who follows the rational will, which follows general formulae, is alone autonomous and free. He wills for himself only what he would will for others. This assumes that the essential self is the general self and that it becomes unfree only by giving priority to particular desires. By ruling out consideration of personal desires and one's moral choices, Kant has internalized Rousseau's plebiscite. This is also true of that categorical imperative which bids me treat others as ends in themselves. Since I am not moral if I try to promote their particular interests, it follows that treating them as ends in themselves means treating them as purely rational selves, that is, as selves like myself, seeking to live as citizens in the kingdom of ends, the ethical city, the city of God. Rousseau has reinstated the old dualism between nature and convention with a vengeance. 
Kant, his moral disciple, has transformed that political convention into a moral necessity, bearing down hard upon man. The unity of nature and reason postulated by the Enlightenment had been shattered and the stage for the modern age had essentially been set. Thank you. Glad to entertain any questions or comments. Yes, sir. I wonder if, um, did he put his children into the orphanage before or after he formulated ideas, his ideas of childbearing? He kept having children all along. I, 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 I'm not sure just when he did this. Uh, he several times expressed his uh, sorrow that he had done this, but he left them in the orphanage. Dr. Locke. It appears that he did through Kant and Hegel and perhaps also directly in Marx's early writings where he talks of alienation. But later on when he passed over to the role of an economist, uh, uh, he, uh, he didn't seem to think much of Rousseau. But Rousseau seemed to have influenced Engels in his idea of primitive communism and the, you know, the, the tribes and so on, Bachhoff and, and uh, uh, other anthropologists who had this influence on, on Engels. Yes? Didn't he propose that these legislators or the drafters of these plebiscites be elected or appointed? Neither. They just come in. <laughs> Uh, I don't know whether you've read B.F. Skinner's uh, Walden to you. Ought to read it. This is a perfect example of the Rousseauian state. Uh, Fraser, the, the true founder of the uh, society, has set up a system which makes everyone want to, want to obey the Walden code. And a lot of people don't even know who, who that funny little man is who thinks too much is. They don't even know his name. Uh, I remember in uh, Professor Ridpath's lecture on Nietzsche that that um, this point being that a lot of people just took him on on uh, surface. Um, are there countries in Europe that still look on Rousseau on the surface? I remember you saying in Belgium they still force everyone to vote, but in in other ways, are there countries in in Europe that really still look towards Rousseau for? Um, Not explicitly. Uh, Rousseau is more an ideal of the Greens than he is of any specific government, but there are the specific item, items, like the uh, article which I noticed some years ago in the Belgian Constitution. I don't know whether it's still there, but there are still countries where it's compulsory to vote. You can see the reason. Yes, this gentleman. At what point did he believe that the individual entered into this social contract? Was it just at birth, or was it a gradual process as you accepted things from society? Or? You know, uh, he, he's always speaking symbolically and with his tongue half in his cheek and half out of his cheek, and it's hard to tell just what he's referring to, and some of the time what he's writing is really seems to be a hidden threat. 
such as he's, when he says a terror is threatening this generation, while well, the reign of terror did come, and it was guided by the national convention, which had the social contract on a kind of altar in the front of the room, just laid out, uh, open. Uh, so he apparently meant a bloody revolution, but he didn't say that. Yes? Did Rousseau have any influence on the Kantian concept of disinterest? Oh, absolutely. That's what disinterest is, the general interest. Uh, uh, and when disinterest is applied to morality, it's the general interest. When it's applied to aesthetics, it's a, a certain detachment from all emotional uh, empathy or anything like that with the, with the aesthetic object uh, in the critique of judgment. Yes? Committing yourself to write a refutation of what Locke had already no, but he, every now and then he quotes Locke and uh, he, uh, he indicates that he thinks that the present, even the present monarchical government in France is somewhat Lockean because it claims to protect men from robbers mainly. Uh, but his criticism could also be taken as a critique of the Hobbesian social contract, you see, which he, which he was also against because the sovereign was called in from the outside. So therefore I have exaggerated the picture a little bit when I've said that he was just opposed to the Lockean concept, but he was opposed to it. Yes? Uh, how prevalent is the teaching of Rousseau's philosophy in our universities? I don't know. Yeah, maybe some of you could could answer that. Uh, uh, I think that Rousseauistic premises are all over the place. Uh, they're not in the form of any one plan. I don't, don't think many people really understand Rousseau's whole plan. But there's a kind of Rousseauistic knee-jerk uh, present in large parts of our university faculties and student bodies, insofar as the university, in a certain way, is a buffer against the uh, the, the real world, one would expect some of this to be present. Uh, it's present in the uh, form of certain kinds of uh, no, it's ecology, it's, it's a good example of this. Uh, yes? Would you think it's correct to say that uh, Rousseau's uh, concept of freedom, that alternative concept of freedom, this whole political view, uh, given that it was formulated during the Enlightenment, could not have taken off the way it did uh, in later centuries, uh, had he not, to some extent, sparked Kant on, and had Kant not, uh, for other reasons as well, come and kind of prepared more fundamental groundwork for it? It's hard to say what could have happened in history, but you, you see, uh, some of the, the European classical liberals, uh, both, they worshipped both Locke and Rousseau and they didn't make any, any real distinction. The whole idea was confused in their mind. Even today, you can sometimes find objectivists who say Rousseau had some good ideas. They, they just through you know, uh, insufficient acquaintance or study, some of the uh, Fathers of the American Revolution apparently didn't think too badly of Rousseau. They just read him in the, in the context of Locke 
and their minds were so blinded by the, the brilliance of, uh, of Lot, they, they just didn't see the rising star of, uh, of Rousseau, they didn't see the significance of it. He takes the trouble, you see, to speak the same language as Locke does, and it appears that he's agreeing with, with Locke. By, by infiltration, by a kind of gradual osmosis, uh, uh, you get the idea that Rousseau was a great defender of freedom, that Kant was a great defender of freedom, that Hegel was a great defender of freedom, and all these men were for the enlightenment and for freedom of the individual and so on. And uh, you get this sort of thing in Ernst Cassirer, for instance, in his uh, commentaries on Kant and on and then Rousseau, and it's just part of the European intellectual climate. Didn't also just push all the altruist buttons that they had built into them from religious influence? Yes, that's another point. Those buttons had been, the, the current had been somewhat weakened by the Enlightenment, you see, and Rousseau, re, you see, he, he, he took away some of those uh, safety devices that, that had been uh, erected by, by Locke. So now that somehow the, the language of freedom goes along with the language of altruism and the concepts of freedom flow in the same stream and they're all mixed up and tumbling over one another. Yes? In connection with the idea, uh, with the Founding Fathers, I'm wondering if Rousseau would have had an influence on them insofar as the 19th century Republican ideology and their ideas of public virtue as this sort of social glue in the absence of traditional tyrannical power. Yes, I think so. Yeah, Rousseau, uh, he elevated the ideal of the city-state, you see, and, and uh, he elevated the ideal of public service. Uh, as the great thing which the private citizen could do to, to uh, uh, express an important part of his inner self, to free himself from guilt and so on. Public service is, is so to speak, what the businessman should do after having pursued his own interest for a while, and that's the highest type of life. McNamara is Rousseauistic man. Uh, no one is sure, but I, I just said maybe it's because of the apparent contra of the real contradiction here. Why was it de deleted uh, from present-day copies? Rousseau himself removed it from the original edition, and it has since been discovered, and very often today it is inserted, sometimes as an appendix to the social contract. Yes. Uh, can you draw any parallel between uh, Calvin as a foreign and non-official legislator in uh, Geneva and uh, Gaddafi and Tripoli? And who? And Gaddafi and uh, Tripoli. Oh, the parallel with Gaddafi is, uh, is uh, 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 well, uh, no, no, uh, not quite so. Uh, I don't know. What is uh, Gaddafi's own uh, legal position? In uh -huh. Well, then the parallel is absolute. Uh, and I would be more inclined to draw a parallel between uh, Calvin and Khomeini. 
Uh, you see, he is the perfect Rousseauistic legislator, and fountains of blood are flowing. Yes. Um, who came before Rousseau? Who was Rousseau facing his ideas? Who did he say he was? Well, he praises Plato. Uh, he praises the Stoics. Uh, he praises Calvin, minus his Christianity, you see. He, he's not really a supernaturalist. He's what the, the gentleman who, who asked about secular humanism was. He's, he's, a, he's, he's Christianity horizontalized. Instead of worshiping God, you worship your brother, you see. Uh, you worship everybody and all of us. This is, this is, this is, secular humanism is secularized Christianity. Any more questions? Yes. Is there a explicit or implicit metaphysics and epistemology to itself? There's very little of that, actually. There, uh, um, well, yesterday I tried to bring it out that in the, in the strict sense of implicit, rather, uh, you mean that he doesn't actually say it blatantly. Uh, he doesn't formulate it in terms of theorems. Is that what, that's what you mean? Right? Yeah. He brings it out in his advice to man to have a dialogue with himself and to ask himself, not his reason, but his feelings, at what point he would have liked civilization to stop. At what point, for instance, would you in your life have liked your life to have stopped, possibly as an infant at the breast, your feelings will reply. Everything was uh, like paradise then. You were in your mother's arms. It was a wonderful feeling. Uh, uh, you were the kingpin. You see what I mean? He asks you to consult your feelings. You were the center of the universe there. And that's, that's what he wants to take us back to, where every man feels that indignity, uh, certainly, he's the center of the universe, regardless of any qualifications or talents or merits or whatnot. He wants to create that sense, recreate that sense of infantile omnipotence. And the, the, the epistemology involved is that he asks us to use our feelings as the criterion for what we should pursue as a goal. That's the epistemology, knowledge by feelings. Now, that particular epistemology can be formalized very well <laughs> in strict theorems, but uh, and that's probably why he didn't do it. Yes? I was wondering uh, if Rousseau was A, around at the French Revolution, and if he took any part, and what did he think? Did he write anything about it? Oh, no, he wasn't around. He died, uh, um, I'm not sure of the exact date, but he died before the American Revolution. In the 70s, I think. He moved in with David Hume for a while. And, uh, <laughs> after a few weeks, Hume kicked him out. <laughs> a few fleeting sense data later, uh, Hume, Hume had had enough of these moon sense data. <laughs> Yes. I seem to recall there were movements of radical egalitarianism around in France and in England. 
in the 17th century, uh, 18th century, was Rousseau. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, in France, the extreme, the very extreme part of the Jacobin party were constantly uh, citing Rousseau explicitly, and uh, they were trying to overthrow the revolutionary government, as a matter of fact, in order to bring about a kind of, I mean, almost Cambodian uh, Pol Pot state. Now, the levelers and those people, their roots uh, go back uh, to the awakening of biblical uh, communism at the time of the Reformation. And I don't know whether they had any additional, any additional influence uh, from uh, Rousseau, but they, you know, the Anabaptist and other roots are, are, are theirs. Yes. Do you know if Rousseau himself was a political activist in in their way, or was he just ivory tower? Um, he he was a kind of of social critic. I mean, he moved around, he, he, he sponged on various people for so many months, and he, 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 uh, he, he went to parties constantly, let's put it that way, and he, he sort of camped, and uh, he became known through his writings and through uh, stories about him, and he, he became a care, he was a, he was a, a late enlightenment character, that's what he was, and he was really a prophet, of course, of anti-enlightenment. Now, someone asked me something about Burke last time. I wonder if the gentleman who did that would rephrase his, uh, his yes. I want to know whether Rousseau, whether he saw any influence by Rousseau on Edmund Burke, and I was thinking in the sense of the anti-pleasure, anti-sex, and the fact that Edmund Burke has a tremendous influence on American conservatives today, I wonder. I, I do not, the, my answer is I don't know, as I told you before, about the politics, but I do believe that he had some influence on Burke's aesthetics. Uh, Burke was really the modern originator of the concept of the sublime as distinguished from the beautiful. The sublime is something utterly overpowering the, the, the feelings and quite different from the, the beautiful, which was something finite. And uh, at around this time came the very beginnings of Romanticism, the Gothic novel, and uh, uh, the sense of being immersed in a kind of wild terror in nature. Uh, probably before this time, people had looked upon the Alps mainly as barriers, as stones in the way, and now they began to practically worship the, the Alps as something utterly overpowering feelings. So I, I think, that I, I'm, I'm just guessing now, I'm, I, I, I re requested the repetition of the question so I could point this out as a possible source for anyone's research if they want to look into uh, the influence, the possible influence of Rousseau on Burke's aesthetics, his concept of the sublime. Yes. Pro-American Revolution, anti-French uh, uh, Revolution, yes. possibly because of Rousseau. Maybe. I, I really don't know. Yes. Would you comment on any sort of linkage of influence into the United States Supreme Court and legislative decisions, for instance, Oliver Wendell Holmes, taxes are the price we pay for civilization, 
the mandatory oh. conscription laws after the Civil War. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yes, definitely. The, the link was, the main link was Oliver Wendell Holmes. And Holmes belonged to a society called the Metaphysical Club, which met at Harvard, and uh, other members were William James and C.S. Peirce, the founders of pragmatism. And uh, Holmes was very much influenced also by Hegel's aesthetics, as a matter of fact, because Hegel had a, a theory of tragedy according to which the dynamics of tragedy uh, consists in a conflict between rights, you say, and there's right on both sides, uh, you say, both uh, uh, Oedipus and his father, and so on. They're both in the right, and the conflict is then worked out in blood. And uh, uh, Hegel applied this uh, theory of tragedy, as a matter of fact, also to some extent in his political philosophy, a uh, political philosophy of conflicting rights that are ultimately synthesized. So definitely, I would say, by a long chain of intellectual links uh, uh, from Rousseau to Oliver Wendell Holmes, yes. Yes? Uh, yeah, um, you mentioned that uh, sort of B.F. Skinner sort of was an idealization of uh, Rousseau's political views. I was wondering how um, you might sort of construe um, Skinner's belief that human action is sort of uh, is selected for you by the environment, and uh, how would that sort of relate to uh, Rousseau's belief in people's inclination to sort of pursue the general will? Well, uh, in Emil, the educator stays largely behind the scenes, you know, and he arranges situations for the, the uh, student to encounter, you see? And he conditions him in this way so that the student eventually uh, comes to be conditioned or educated into loving the, the program, loving the laws, loving the system. So there is a, a connection, I think, at least with Skinner's application of behaviorism, and probably with many others. I, I don't know enough about uh, uh, behaviorism as a, as a total movement, but I think there are many other uh, thinkers, in, uh, maybe Dr. Locke, uh, in, in behavioristic school, which uh, uh, have been influenced in this way by Emil. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>